So we're uh, at the Winterland Festival um, in the middle of Five Points, traditionally the Bohemian district of uh, Jacksonville's Riverside area. There's over 40 local bands playing tonight and plus a bunch of out-of-town bands. So we're going to see who knows anything about the Allman Brothers in Jacksonville. A lot of denim and a lot of hair. How hard they rock? I wanted to ask you what you know about the Allman Brothers band. This is the, that really you're asking me this question? Do you know where they're from? Um, Florida. Getting hotter. <laughs> a really formative period of their uh, musical history took place right here in Riverside where you're standing right now. No way. Yeah, yeah. And they have a house. That's historic landmark right now. You know who else was formed in Jacksonville though? My favorite Jacksonville band, Limp Biscuit. <laughs> which, which record do you We have, have Live at the Fillmore, and then, what's the first album? Self-titled, The Allman Brothers? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Allman Brothers Band. Yeah, with like Not My Cross the Bear and all that jazz on it. Love that album. Do you feel proud, like a connection to them, being a that you guys are a Jacksonville band and they were a Jacksonville oh, band? Oh, of course. We love all the Jacksonville bands. <laughs> the Skinner, baby. Freebird. <laughs> more of an inspiration to us than the Allman Brothers. I'm just kidding. You think uh, Skinner or Limp Bizkit are more often associated with Jacksonville than maybe the Allman Brothers are? I would say for sure. Yeah, I would say for sure. I think Allman Brothers are not... Um, you got to dig deep on the Allman Brothers. Today, we're digging deep, diving into what was arguably the most formative period of the Allman Brothers Band, a span of roughly four passion, drug, and kismet-fueled months in which all of the pieces of this legendary group came together, right here in Jacksonville, Florida. This is The Voidcast from Void Magazine and WJCT Public Media where we cut through the digital noise and subvert the algorithms, taking you on a locals-only journey through the history and contemporary vibrancy of music from Northeast Florida. I'm your host, Matt Shaw, Editor-in-Chief of Northeast Florida Culture and Lifestyle Magazine, Void. If you don't know much about the Allman Brothers Band, here's a quick foundation. The Allman Brothers Band remains one of the most critically admired groups of its era. They were commercially successful too, selling something like 10 million records. ABB songs like Dreams and Revival, many of which were written or came together during the band's time in Jacksonville, turned the late 60s music scene on its ear. The Allman Brothers' third album, At Fillmore East, is widely considered one of the best live rock albums ever. The band had six original members, Barry Oakley on bass, Dickie Betts on guitar, two drummers, Jai Johanny Johansson and Butch Trucks, and two brothers raised in Daytona Beach named Gregory and Dwayne Allman, on Hammond B3 and slide guitar respectively. Each member is individually heralded as one of the best to play his instrument. For instance, both Dickie Betts and Dwayne Allman made Rolling Stone Magazine's list of 100 best guitarists of all time. 
Betts at number 61, Allman at number 9. And if you were around Jacksonville in 1969, you could have met them, maybe at the comic book club downtown, or seen them perform before any of this fame at a free concert in a park, like Willow Branch Park in the Riverside area. So the Almonds played here. They jammed for three months and they moved. Yeah. <laughs> Nonstop jam. <laughs> so, they jammed for the season. On a Monday morning, I visited the park with my friend, musician and journalist Daniel Brown. He writes the arts and music column for Void Magazine, and he's a wealth of Jacksonville music history knowledge. It's a gray, uh, what month is it? February day. February. So we're like roughly 50 years uh, removed from when the Allman Brothers uh, were jamming here. Looking We're here trying to sniff out any trace of a somewhat mythical and maybe mystical few months of activity that, in many ways, coalesced around this park in the late 1960s. There's a, you know, a swing set, not sure uh, when that was built, uh, and a slide, basketball court, <clears throat> baseball field. I don't know if any of this stuff was here at the time. During the jam area. Yeah, during the jam area. But what I don't see is a place to plug in. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah. Looking around this park and thinking about, like, how many people... Do you imagine where like I've seen pictures. I don't think it was not like uh, the dead in Haight Ashbury. It was like a smaller, lower. I, I can't believe that the city allowed this too, which still kind of trips me out. That somehow these hippies were playing in Jacksonville <laughs> in a park, that the cops weren't here with like you know yeah. batons swinging on hippie skull. Legendary as it would turn out to be, the Almond Brothers' time in Jacksonville at least as the original sextet was short-lived, less than four months in the spring of 1969, then poof, they were gone, to Macon, Georgia. Then on the road, playing famously at places like Piedmont Park in Atlanta, in the studio with Eric Clapton. Yeah, that's Dwayne Allman. And of course, for Bill Graham at the Fillmore, both east and west. Also, fun fact, Greg Allman would marry Cher at one point. Yeah, that Cher. But let's back up. In March of 1969, a burgeoning countercultural scene was reaching a kind of critical mass here in the Riverside neighborhood of Jacksonville as a group of crack musicians from varying musical backgrounds united here and set to jamming in houses around the neighborhood, on front porches, and on certain occasions, parks like this one. Dan and I are of the opinion that the band is wildly underappreciated here. Only just recently, they were honored with a historical marker indicating Jacksonville as the birthplace of the Allman Brothers. It's about a half mile from this park in front of a two-story gray house where some of the band's members lived and jammed. I gotta say it's a pretty it's a pretty intense uh, history for a placard. I'm really impressed. It's like based from Chicago, they're from Mississippi. Is there a reason why maybe they're not as like celebrated here um, as being like a you know hometown band? Uh, yeah, I mean I could cry skullduggery like the city just being uh, you know, cultural killjoys. It took like 50 years to put a plaque in front of a house. And that, to me, that's the city. I mean, there should be a, a bronze statue of Dwayne Allman at five points. Because <laughs> any, other, any other city would take advantage of this. I mean, admittedly, with Skinner, but the Allman Brothers were such a huge, huge and, and unique band, for, even for that era. The Allman Brothers band is often lumped in with other Jack's exports, like Leonard Skinner and 38 Special, and labeled Southern Rock. The term, at least as far as ABB is concerned, is wholly inaccurate. Dwayne and Greg were reared on a heavy dose of R&B and rock and roll. Other members brought infatuations with folk, psychedelia, and jazz. As a group, they were famously improvisational. Performances could last three to four hours. 
Do you remember the first time uh, you heard the Allman Brothers Band or like when you really got into them? Well, I'm old, so I was a kid in the 70s. I had a friend uh, who lived in Jack's Beach and her mom was this like old hippie. And we'd go up there to her apartment and, uh, and her mom had all these cool records. So while we were like rebinding Bibles, we listened to <laughs> the Allman Brothers. And that's where I first heard what is my, one of my favorite performances ever, which is in memory of Elizabeth Reed at Fillmore East. That was just a, just a mind blowing song. And, it, and when I hear it today, it still kind of takes me back to that like apartment, let the windows open. And then she had like Thelonious Monk records. It was like all this information to take in to be like 13, 14 years old. And I was already into music playing, but to hear like the Allman Brothers and then hear like this Monk record, it was just like so much to process, but like in a good way, you know, in, in a very good way. They were primarily a, a live band, you know, as far as, that's, that's what they're known for. I've, people have strong memories of seeing these guys play, even through the alleged haze of the 60s, you know what I mean? Like, people have specific memories of seeing them, and yeah. they, they really didn't play as a band for that long. But they also, they toured constantly, like the time that they wore that original lineup, they were always playing. If you read about, it was like they play hundreds of dates a year. So obviously they weren't worried about making hit records at all. They were trying to just play all the time, you know. The Allman Brothers have just, to me, I'm this like mystical lore about them, you know. Like, oh, I saw the band, you know, at the hardware store, you know, that kind of thing. All these stories came up. It's like almost, people felt like obligated to create this mythology around them, which is interesting to me. The Voidcast is part of WJCT's Jacksonville Music Experience, here to give music fans in Northeast Florida and beyond lots of ways to enjoy their favorite artists and discover new genres on the air, online, on demand, and in person. It's three streaming music stations, TV and online performances, and the WJCT Soundstage Series. Check it out now at wjct.org slash jacksmusic. A comprehensive and accurate historical account of the Allman Brothers Band has eluded even the most accomplished music journalists. Hello. Hi. Linda. I'm ready. Here, <laughs> <laughs> Matt. But if there's anyone who can give me the straight story on the Allman Brothers' time here in Jacksonville, it's Linda Miller. I wanted to marry George Harrison. <laughs> I think I came pretty close. Linda didn't marry a Beatle, but she did marry an Allman Brother. Well, I should say a member of the Allman Brothers Band. Barry Oakley, who would become the band's bassist. Linda grew up in Murray Hill on Jacksonville's west side. She remembers the scene well, pretending to be a horse as a little girl, Beatlemania in middle school. Through high school, the music was just more and more happening. Uh, I became less interested in high school. We'd walk home to my girlfriend's house through all these beautiful neighborhoods, and we'd pick out our houses, you know, and be smoking cigarettes to be cool, and walk back to my one friend's house where we'd listen to music and, you know, dream and imagine. And this scene evolved as, um, you know, there were more and more 
concerts on the weekends, like at the Riverside Women's Club. That was a, you know, that joint was jumping. Various other venues, you know, clubs, anywhere where there was a stage and um, chaperones. We went one night and there was this, you know, band that looked like they were right out of San Francisco. The dance floors lighting up. <laughs> and there's Dickie, uh, Rhino, the drummer John Meeks, and Barry. Her future husband. He did a lot of the singing. Um, but, you know, I noticed him right away. He just had this charm about him and these sparkling eyes. Um, and he came over, somebody introduced us, <laughs> and, you know, we struck up a friendship, which later became, you know, a very sweet, innocent romance. We'd sit out on the porch and watch dragons crawling through the, <laughs> the palm tree in front of the yard, and everything was sparkling and colorful, if you know what I mean. One night, we walked down the street to Willow Branch Park, and we're just running around on all fours in the grass. There were little creeks running through the park, you know, and hills. So we're running around, he's going, you're my mate, you know, and like we're tigers or lions. <laughs> and uh, he runs on all fours and jumps across this creek. And he says, come on, Linda, you're my mate. You have to do this too. <laughs> you have to follow, <laughs> you know, follow your mate. So I jumped over the creek on all fours, you know, how we, kind of put our vibes and, and soaked up the vibes of Willow Branch. This was the 1960s when rock and roll was becoming a worldwide phenomenon. The Beatles and Rolling Stones-led British Invasion made an incalculable number of kids pick up electric guitars and start rock bands. Meanwhile, there was a seemingly insatiable desire for bands who could perform in the style de rigueur. There were the girls who stood around and they danced together just so they could dance. And um, there were the other girls who'd stand there at the front of the stage, <laughs> you know, just goo-goo-eyed. I sort of became one of those. <laughs> and there, you know, there'd be some young men up there too, and a lot of them became future local bands, like the One Percent, <laughs> um, which you know became the Van Zant crew. That would be Ronnie Van Zant, who'd found Leonard Skinner a short while later. Bands like the 31st of February and the Almond Joys, which featured future members of the Almond Brothers Band, were catering to the merging youth culture, gigging clubs around the Southeast, including in Jacksonville. Linda remembers the first night she saw Dwayne and Greg Almond play. It was at a club in downtown Jacksonville called the Beachcomber Lounge. A lot of guys from the Navy would come, come in. In fact, the waitresses all had these Navy outfits, but they were high midriff with a little collar and uh, low-cut bell bottoms, and they were all, you know, uh, drooling after bands that would come in there and play. But I tell you, Dwayne just there was like there was this fire around him. He emitted these vibes that just sucked the air out of the room, and the melodies were just right on it. The rhythms, you know, they were just incredible. So the next night, I told my girlfriends, we have to go to the Beachcomber Lounge. And then we went to the Beachcomber downtown. I don't know if my parents will let me go, but, you know, we didn't fill any <laughs> details in. We're going to go to a dance. My mother gave me a quarter to call home in case anything happened. And I took them to see the Almond Joys. And we were all smitten, you know. So um, 
they came over and hung out. They invited us to come see them at their little court motel up on Phillips Highway, come by tomorrow afternoon. And then they invited us to stay for the Bottle Club, which started at 2 a.m., where all the kids had to leave and, you know, everybody bought their bottle and had their mixers. And the Almond Joys just played all this old blues. They just cut loose and played what they wanted to play. A short while later, she would introduce the Almonds to Barry Oakley, her then-boyfriend. It was around this time that Oakley began assembling groups of musicians in the middle of Willow Branch Park and diving into hours-long jams. Oakley's impromptu sessions drew a rotating cast of characters, including bets and trucks. Sometime in the wee hours of the morning in March of 1969, a wild-eyed and bearded slide guitar player with flowing red hair, Dwayne Allman, who'd recently been given the nickname Sky Dog, came knocking on the front door of a house in Riverside dubbed The Greenhouse, where Oakley lived. He'd come back to Jack's with a record contract and a vision. Now all he needed was a band. So Dwayne went to Muscle Shoals, and he's doing these sessions and starting to record on his own. That's Muscle Shoals, Alabama, home to the renowned Fame Studios. And that's where he got together with Jay Johnny. Jay Johnny was his drummer. But you probably know him as J-Mo. So he came back to Jacksonville, and they're sitting in all these different jams. And um, one particular night, he came over. Everybody had gone to bed. He came, up, came over with his um, acoustic, and he and Barry got together in this dining room, you know, where we had amps and stuff stored, and they sat up all night just playing, you know, very mellow and working out these tunes all night long. I went upstairs and went to bed after a while because I was tired, and I... Also, as it turns out, I was pregnant. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Um, but I, you know, I'm in the room above them, and it was just like, you know, I'm hearing this magic being born, this sort of love affair <laughs> growing. With Oakley, Betts, Trucks, and JMO in place, Almond called on his brother Greg, who was still in L.A., and told him, come to Jacksonville. Dwayne got Greg back in town. He's what completed with his voice and his keyboards, you know, his B3. Now, there are conflicting stories about how Greg Allman got to Jacksonville to complete the band's lineup. He says he hitchhiked. Others say Dwayne bought him a plane ticket. Regardless, he did arrive in Jacksonville in March of 69, and the group even played a show together, all six pieces, at the Jacksonville Armory. Several members of the group moved into a large multiplex house off Riverside Avenue. Dubbed the Gray House, the one that now has a plaque outside, perhaps as much for the exterior color as the foggy recollections related to everything from the jams that took place there to who actually paid rent, the Gray House became Allman Brothers HQ. So we moved out of the greenhouse down to the Gray House. Dickie and Dale moved in across from Hop upstairs. Barry and I moved in downstairs. Um, we painted and put up all, all our posters and, you know, beaded curtains uh, and Rhino and his wife moved in across the hall from us into these small apartments. And I remember going in and hearing the first, after they worked on the new song, hearing it played there. You know, it's, I get to witness this. This is my life. And look what's, you know, it just seemed like, of course, this is what happens next. But by May of 1969, just a few months after Sky Dog's arrival, much of the band had relocated to Macon, Georgia, with a record label that had signed them, Capricorn, 
was setting up shop. Members came and went for some time. And when they finally went for good, they didn't go quietly. One night we were up in Dickie's apartment. Dwayne was there with Donna, his girlfriend, and, um, you know, just everybody who could fit in there. Um, Dickie, crazy as he was, is, you know, <laughs> he was so intense. He had his gun up there, and he's, you know, getting all buzzed, and they're having a few beers. He points his gun out the back window and shoots it through the screen, Wild West, and there's this knock on the door. And Dale goes to answer it, and there's these two very large policemen at the door. Uh, we had reports of a disturbance up here, and um, <laughs> they walk in, and here's this pile of reefer on the table. And uh, Dickie goes in, hey, man, it's nice to see you. Uh, well, you know, I'm sorry about the noise. You know, we're just kind of having a party up here, a friend's here from out of town. And he goes, uh, why don't you uh, let my wife fix you some coffee? And in the meantime, he goes, we were just trimming up some flowers here. Let me clear off the table. <laughs> and he's like sweeping into his hand and into his T-shirt. And then <laughs> they're going, what's that? He runs through the front room of the house and punches the other screen out in the front, and he's trying to throw this stuff out the window. So you had mentioned something about what, you know, influenced the band moving to Macon. Well, this was kind of the the last straw. They took Dickie to jail. Um, Phil, in the meantime, had gotten these two apartments, um, on Cotton Avenue in this, you know, old district with these huge, huge old, you know, southern mansions. Um, and they go up periodically and, you know, do a little jamming, get to know each other. But um, Dickie, you know, got a lawyer and um, he was advised, don't even try to fight this, don't go to court, move to Macon. You know, take your wife and your child and just get out of town, which is what he did. Was it something about the culture in Jacksonville in general that pushed them out, or was it more specific to that incident? It was that incident. Though they were only in Jacksonville for a short time as a full band, the Allman Brothers' time here was highly productive. They arrived in Macon as both a well-oiled live band and artists with a plethora of material ready to record. In retrospect, it's rather fitting that they packed so much into their short stint in Jacksonville. Just two years later, they'd achieved their commercial breakthrough with the live album At Fillmore East. A few months after that record came out, Dwayne Allman would die in a motorcycle accident. A year later, Barry Oakley met a similar fate. In 76, infighting would sever ties between the remaining members. But in roughly seven years as a band, they accomplished quite a lot. This was the road that we were taking. You know, I was being taken along on this adventure And it was my life, you know, all tangled up in these other lives. And it was also one life. You know, they really became brothers. And it was not that, you know, the hippie environment or that Jacksonville decided they didn't want anything to do with this because it was growing and growing. People were being attracted to this good energy, you know, as Barry created this phrase hitting the note he wanted everybody to hit the note and um, you know their playing would feed off of this good energy the day that he died 
Um, I came home from the hospital where he'd been taken and fell asleep and dreamed that I was riding my horse out on the farm, down these clay roads and out in the woods, and I'm so happy. Riding my horse was one of my happiest pastimes. And the sky turned really dark, like before a storm, that kind of electric gray. And, you know, the green trees looked electric, just that pre-storm thing. And it was like what I used to call an instant bummer. Uh, I became very sad, and I realized that Barry had died. And then I feel this hand on my leg, and I look down, and Barry's walking beside me. And his face is just glowing, and he's smiling at me. This thing about, I don't know if there's a band in heaven or, you know, but I think we do, our spirits do greet each other that, you know, there's this energy. You can't destroy energy. It just takes a new form. And so much energy was created, you know, during this short lifetime of, you know, our family. Despite, or perhaps because of its short time together, the Allman Brothers Band continue to inspire a distinctive kind of fandom. Melody Trucks has played her fair share of Allman Brothers covers with her group, the Melody Trucks Band. She's the daughter of late Allman Brothers Band member Butch Trucks. And his picture is actually the centerpiece of a sentimental collection of heirlooms attached to her necklaces. Today, she's just finishing up band practice in our living room. My mom and dad separated when I was very young, so I actually grew up more with my mother. Do you have a first uh, a memory that sticks out in your mind of when you were like kind of became aware of the Almond Brothers band and, and sort of their influence on, on music? Well, the memory that I have is not necessarily the influence that they had, but I remember the first time that as a child I put two and two together. Um, I probably was two or three years old, maybe. Um, and I remember, you know, being the toddler and, you know, you get that tagline in your head of something, you know, of a song and you just sing it over and over and over again because that's what toddlers do. And I can remember actually singing this song and dancing around in my, my kitchen. And I'm sure I was driving my mom crazy, but I just kept singing the same um, line over and over again. And my mom had this incredible long brown hair that kind of came down to her waist and I remember her leaning over and that curtain of hair just kind of flowing over her shoulder and and 
she looked at me. She's like, you know, that's daddy, right? And I, I can remember thinking about it. And she, and she had to say it again. She's like, that's your daddy who plays that song. And from that day on, I knew my dad played the Silver Dollar song. Melody's got music in her blood, obviously. Her older brother, Valor, is an accomplished guitarist. Her younger brother is a talented percussionist, her sister a dancer. One of Melody's cousins is the drummer for the beloved jam band Widespread Panic. Oh, and her other cousin, Derek Trucks, you may have heard of him. He's considered one of the greatest living guitarists. Do you have people come up to you often when you're playing out um, that ask you about the Allman Brothers band? Is that a common occurrence in your life as a musician? Extremely common. <laughs> um, and, and I appreciate it because it really reminds me just the breadth of of their influence and how many people they touched in, with their music. Actually, one of one of the guys was talking to me, one of the guys in the band, Westbrook, was talking to me at one point. He's like, well, you know, when I wrote this song, you know, people come up and ask me about it all the time, about what I meant when I, you know, he said, we sing this together. Do people talk to you about it? And I was like, no. <laughs> it's because every time that someone comes and talks to me, they're talking about my family, which, like I said, I embrace because... Um, it's pretty humbling to, to realize just how many people they actually touched. What do you think the legacy of the Allman Brothers band, like what did they do um, for music or to change music? They didn't bind themselves by genre. They didn't bind themselves by you know musical structure. They didn't bind themselves to anything that was quote unquote, you know, the norm. They pulled in jazz. They pulled in blues. They pulled in, you know, soul. They pulled in country and rock and roll and all of these different genres. And they made it into something that was so completely new and so completely different. They broke ground in a way that I don't think anybody's really been able to do since. There's kind of a lack of awareness, maybe, that that the band, the Brothers Band, was formed here in Jacksonville. Um, is that something that you've noticed, too, or like uh, sort of a lack of uh, people sort of embracing them as a Jacksonville band because they were here for such a short time? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, because they, their quote-unquote, you know, big break or whatever you want to call it was out of Macon, everyone as- associates them with Macon. Which is, I was born there. I love Macon, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, people have kind of embraced the, the Leonard Skinner you know, um, team here in Jacksonville, which I think is fantastic. I mean, they, they came from the same city, but, you know, I mean, it, it really just has to do with the history of the way that the bands really first presented themselves. So, um, you know, I don't have any. You know, I, there's no like ill will or anything. Like, Darn it, they're from here. But, you know, I also associate with both, you know, I, I associate with Macon and with Jacksonville. So, um, no, there's no like, yeah, do I wish that more people knew they were here? Probably, but, you know, <laughs> you know. True to her Almond Brothers band heritage, Melody retains an individualistic spirit as an artist, bent on charting her own path. We have intentionally not dug too deep into the Almond Brothers 
catalog because we don't want to ever be seen as an Allman Brothers tribute band. The ones we actually are are really digging into, it's not so much Allman Brothers music, but it's another band that my father played in. Um, it was a band called Frog Wings, and we've actually kind of adopted the Frog with Wings as our, our little totem because it's my way of paying homage to my dad. But she can't help but keep the band's music alive. She's sure to plug in a cover of a classic or obscure AVB tune to each set. A tribute to those who came before her, which is something the Allman Brothers, a band who is known to jam on a litany of classic blues tunes, would surely appreciate. This is an old true story. This is called, I Must Have Did Somebody Wrong. This is The Voidcast from Void Magazine and WJCT Public Media. I'm the editor of Void Magazine, Matt Shaw. This episode was produced by Lindsay Kilbride and recorded at the studios of WJCT. Check out an episode-inspired playlist at wjct.org slash voidcast. The bell my baby called that.